Keep smiling, keep shining, knowing you can always count on me. How are you? Episode 26. Here we go. The other night, my wife and I were on the patio enjoying a nice summer night. And I looked up at the moon and I simply said, we've been there. Man has been to the moon and it was not even a big deal. How could that be? It's not a big deal anymore. We just look at the moon. We all know we've been there. Man has been to the moon and it's no longer really fascinating. It's no longer really captivating to realize that. Now, this is the late 60s we're talking about. 1969. Man successfully landed on the moon. When I teach this to my students during the Cold War unit, you talk about the space race and how the Americans and the Russians were competing in science and technology and education And it was a big deal back then. And they just go, okay, yeah, we've been to the moon. Shouldn't that continue to blow our minds? We've been to the fucking moon? You realize there is a moment in time where people in society just stop being interested in really wild things, as wild as they are. I don't think the human brain has the capacity to remain captivated for all that long. Like think of the last time you were really fascinated with something. Your mind was blown. Now think about that exact same topic. You're like, all right. You kind of just accept it now. Oh, yeah, that's part of life. That's how the world works. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, mankind would look up at the moon and say, yeah, we're never going there. Yeah, we'll never get there. Then all of a sudden it happened. Do you like how I just say all of a sudden? And that's my way of not researching truly how a rocket ship or a space shuttle gets to the moon. That's not what this podcast is about. I mean, I could Google it. I could read you the Wikipedia page on how these space shuttles get to the moon. Or maybe I'll even trigger your interest right now and then you'll Google it and go, yeah, actually, how do we go to the moon and then walk on the moon? It's fascinating, though. We now look at airplanes in the sky every single day and we don't care anymore. Yeah, that's transportation. That's how people get around. That's still pretty wild. Even TV. 99.99999% of people have no clue how TV works. Live sports on my TV? How am I watching Wimbledon? How am I watching the British Open on my TV live? I guess I will never understand anything wireless, and it's that simple. But next time you're just having a nice night on your patio, a nice summer evening, look up at the moon and just realize with all of the objects and things we've ever built, We've built enough things and enough objects to get there. That's a real way to simplify it, huh? We've built enough things to get there. What's next? See, that question will continue to blow your mind. If you say, what's next? And then you hear about the next big thing, it'll blow your mind. And then it will happen at some point. And then it won't be really mind boggling anymore. It'll just become mainstream. Yep, that's how we do things. It's important to be there for the transition, though, because I've been on this earth from the transition to pre-World Wide Web to post-World Wide Web, and I've seen how the internet consumes our lives. It's interesting. But if you're growing up right now and it's all you know, it's not that interesting. I was not alive in the late 60s during this big space race when people found out, hey, we went to the moon. Hey, we now go to outer space. That's new. I bet people were fucking shocked. Maybe not. But if I was like a high school kid 
back then in the late 60s, and my social studies teachers were informing us on current events, and that was going on in the world, that would be wild. But now it's amazing how little people care. All right, I guess that counts as an intro. I don't even really know how to start these podcasts. Just jump right into it. Global warming is an issue at the forefront of our thoughts lately. Or do I set up the menu, set up the agenda? We're going to start by talking about man walking on the moon. Then, boom, we're going into food, and then comedy, and then TV, and then goodbye. I'll see you next week. But let me backpedal for a moment. I have had a realization, and that is my obsession with food is at a very high level. I don't want to say a dangerous level. I think a lot of people have a love for food. What do they say? You either live to eat or eat to live. I definitely live to eat. I'm constantly looking forward to my next meal, even when I'm currently eating a meal. If it's breakfast, I sometimes start thinking about lunch. If it's lunch, I sometimes start thinking about dinner. If it's dinner, I sometimes start thinking about breakfast. I'm not joking. It's odd that my brain is wired this way, where every third or fourth thought is food. And I know people don't like labels. We all just want to say, I'm me. I don't fall into any category. I'm me. We do have a lot of labels, though. Think about most people you know. We probably do subconsciously or maybe on purpose put them into a category. Oh, he's a dork. Oh, she's a genius. Oh, he's goth. Oh, he's a jock. He's an academic. He's a Democrat. He's a Republican. He's a moderate. We label everybody, even unintentionally. It's just what we do. We label people. Maybe it's easier for us to conjure up images of people by just throwing them into a category. And I realized I'm in a category. I didn't think I was, but it all comes down to this one word, foodie. I don't like that word, but I looked it up on the World Wide Web. Here's all the definitions. Foodie, according to Wikipedia. A foodie is a person who has an ardent or refined interest in food and who eats food not out of hunger, but due to their interest or hobby. Gastronome or gourmand also define the same thing. Urban Dictionary says a person who enjoys eating food, unlike everyone else who hates food, thinks it's disgusting and would never consider eating it. Uh, Miriam Webster, our old friend Miriam, says foodie, a person having an avid interest in the latest food fads. And on and on and on. Yeah, the word is kind of annoying. Like you would never introduce yourself as a foodie, right? Because it almost sounds too obvious. Yeah, of course I love food. Who doesn't? But there are some people who don't. They don't feel the need to evaluate every taste. They just get through their meals. And it's fuel. We all know people like this. I know people like this. I know people who will have a slice of Little Caesars pizza and it's just as good as anything else. Just as good as the finest slice of pizza you'll find in Florence, Italy. Some people don't give a shit. I'm always on a quest to find the greatest restaurants or even to cook some great food in the kitchen. Some people, let's just get by. You know, why waste time? But it consumes me with every thought. If it's a day of the week, I think about, all right, this is the perfect night for Mexican food. Or if it's a holiday, think of every holiday. St. Patty's Day, that's the corned beef. Hanukkah, that's the latke. Thanksgiving, that's your turkey. Christmas, there's your ham. Passover, there's the brisket. Cinco de Mayo, those are your tacos. Flag Day, charcuterie. Arbor Day, steel-cut oatmeal in the morning with honey, raw honey. 
April Fool's Day, tuna sandwich from Scotty's. Your birthday, steakhouse or Osabuco. Take it a step back. What do I remember about elementary school? This is before people cared so much about nutrition at the lunch line. I remember that Monday meant burger day. And I think it was truly Burger King burgers served at Dixie Elementary School. Tuesday, hot dog day. That's how I identify the day of the week. Tuesday was hot dog day. That meant everything. Wednesday, pasta day. Thursday, chicken nugget day. Friday, pizza day from Shakey's. We're not counting carbs back then, folks. It was the 80s. We didn't know what was good or bad for us. Any vacation I will ever plan from here on out is only going to be based on the food. The trip I took to Italy, I'd love to say it was all about the history and the Renaissance art we saw and really soaking up the culture. But truly, the main event was the food. Why do I want to go to New Orleans so bad? The food. New York, the food. I would happily travel to a place for the food. France, why do I want to go to France so bad? The wine, the cheese, the baguettes. The croissants would love to go to Thailand one day. I like Thai food. If I ever went to Japan, my goal would be to find Jiro from Jiro Dreams of Sushi. If he's still alive and sit at his little bar and let him fill me up without a menu. Have you seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Great documentary. But it's an art. And it's not just sushi as an art. All food can be an art. It can be a hobby. Cooking, for me, it's not just to put food on a plate and become full and give myself fuel to live another day. No, it's an activity. You put on some music, put out some appetizers, experiment a little bit, improvise, season it the way you think it should taste. If you mess up, trial and error. That's part of it. And I'm not bored by hearing what other people cook. I've been in many conversations that sound like this. So we took the onions, right? And we started sauteing them at six. And by 620, we would add a little olive oil and some sea salt. And by 625, you turn up the stove to medium and then you cover it. And then after that, they will caramelize on their own. But then you want to wait a little bit before serving them. I care so much about how somebody sautés their onions. I will listen to that boring shit and just keep nodding. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm interested. If a restaurant closes down in our community and we hear there's a coming soon, a grand opening, do you know how exciting that is? <gasps> there's a new restaurant coming to town. I'll lose sleep over this stuff. So it's official. I have a label. Foodie. Probably not a negative. The only negative would be it's all I think about some days. And the specific cravings are constant. Like you don't just crave a certain food. You crave it from somewhere. Like, I'm not just craving a taco, I'm craving an Oscars taco from Pacific Beach. I'm not just craving sushi, I'm craving the sushi deli in San Diego. Cheapest prices you'll ever see. I'm not just craving a slice of pizza, I'm craving a slice from Tomasos on Kearney in the city. Or a deep dish, Little Star on Divisadero. Or a hot dog, not just any hot dog, a Costco dog. Let's be honest, there's really no better hot dog than a Costco hot dog. It's true. I give you the facts, folks. I just give you the facts on this podcast. Craving a seafood salad, Marinjo's, of course. Lump crab. Lump. And I don't hate on bay shrimp. They could cover it in bay shrimp. I don't care. 
I don't discriminate in the shrimp world. Jumbo, prawns, fried, bay. What you got? I'll take it. Guarantee if you ever told me where the best restaurant is, I'm going. And I actually would. State Bird Provisions in San Francisco has that big reputation. I've been. It lived up to it. Most of the time, restaurants with reputations live up to the hype. Most of the time. I can't remember ever hearing about a big-time restaurant experience and actually going, and it was horrible. Most of the time, it receives the hype for a reason. All right, enough about that. I just finished another book. How impressed are you? How impressed are you? How arrogant am I with my high level of literacy over the summer? Folks, I'm a reading machine. I even got Hillary Clinton's book. I even got it. I always thought it was what happened with a question mark. Turns out it's just what happened. She's declaring what happened in her campaign and her election loss to Trump. I literally thought it was what happened with a question mark. Like the whole book was her just wondering what happened. Did you guys ever see what happened? She's just so confused. No, it's a big book. I'm about 15 pages in. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I have a library card. Don't be jealous. So I picked it up. It's not bad, but she's telling us what happened. Here's what happened in my loss to Trump. That is fascinating. Definitely a book she never meant to write, but I'm putting that on the back burner. I just got Kitchen Confidential, Anthony Bourdain's Tell All from the World of Cooking. Started that last night. I'm about 20 pages into that as well. Really good. I hope it becomes scintillating. I hope it gets hot, 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 like its reputation. I'm not sure who is receiving the royalties from Bourdain's fortune, but that guy has got to be generating so much money posthumously. Am I using that word correctly? Posthumously. Through all the people tuning in to see his show and reading his books now. Insanely sad. That will remain insanely sad. Speaking of insanely sad, Robin Williams' documentary on HBO, we saw that. Really well done, but that's also a documentary that was not supposed to be done. I mean, maybe 20, 30 years from now, but there's no way they would have just made a Robin Williams documentary if he was still alive. And they tell his entire life story. In the last five minutes, they get into the Parkinson's, the dementia, the suicide, the really dark end for Robin. But the documentary on HBO, you gotta see it. It's masterful. And my one takeaway is that nobody really knew him. Nobody knew him. It barely seemed like his wives knew him or like his kids knew him or like his friends knew him. Nobody really knew him. He went to Redwood High. I live five minutes from Redwood High. I love Redwood. I student taught there, had a really good experience. Great people there. He did not have a reputation in high school of being a funny guy. I bet most people who went to high school with Robin were like, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Mrs. Doubtfire, Hook, Dead Poet Society, Good Morning Vietnam, Popeye, Goodwill Hunting, Awakenings, all these great movies would lead us to think, oh yeah, he must be enjoying his life. He's making a lot of money. He's making a lot of people laugh. He seems likable. Nobody knew how shy and introverted and miserable he must have been throughout a lot of this. And this documentary kind of paints that picture. Like he would put his foot into the water in L.A., and then he would retreat back up to Marin, Napa. You know, he would put his foot in the water of substance abuse and addiction, and then he would retreat and go to rehab. So he was kind of torn. seemed like he was always torn. But one thing that was totally apparent and evident was that laughter was his medicine. So he would do any comedy club. He would do arenas, or he would do this little Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley in front of 70 people. 
Didn't matter. He was happy to be on. Because when he was off, it got dark. So he liked the red light. Searched for it. And his path to fame is amazing, but no spoiler alerts here. Just go see it. All right, so back to reading. The reading binge I'm on. There's a book called A Life in Comedy by John Caponera. Most people don't know John Caponera. Pretty good comic. Known for his Harry Carey impression before Will Ferrell stole it. Actually, I'm not sure if he stole it, but Will Ferrell's Harry Carey that he did on Weekend Update, it's not as good as John Caponera's. Look it up on YouTube. C-A-P-O-N-E-R-A. John Caponera. So he came up in the comedy boom of the 80s. And I heard him on a podcast say I wrote a book, so I wanted to read it. First time I ever read a book on a Kindle, electronically. I didn't like it. I like the hard copy. I like to feel the book. But that is totally beside the point. I read this book. It was really poorly written, like a lot of typos, grammar issues. However, that is also beside the point. Point is, most people would know the name if the chips fell into place for this guy. From Chicago, during the comedy boom... And he describes life on the road, just like most comics describe it, lonely, sometimes sad, distant from your wife and kids. But it's his trade. It's how he makes a living. So he's got to do it. Airport to airport, shuttle to shuttle, rental car to rental car. It does not sound desirable. And just like Robin Williams looking for that medicine, that laughter. City to city, John Caponera. It's kind of like a comedy vagabond. He even said... I never wanted to be that cruise ship comic, but that's what he is nowadays. He's in his 50s nowadays, and he looks back on his career and goes, you know, I should be satisfied. I make a living. You know, I support my family, but he's not a household name. But he could have been. He tells the story how in 1994, the early 90s, the only way to really gauge success, true success for these stand-up comedians, was if they got that network sitcom. Seinfeld, got it. Ray Romano, everybody loves Raymond. He got it. Brett Butler, she got it. Roseanne Barr, she got it. Paul Reiser, he got a sitcom. Think about that era, the early 90s comics that were landing sitcoms or even talk shows. Leno Letterman. Actually, Letterman is way before. But John Caponera actually did get one. It's called The Good Life. And the way he described it was, it was on NBC for 13 episodes. He thought it was good. Drew Carey, that's another name who was on this show. And eventually he became a comic with his own sitcom as well. But Caponera said, we were up against stiff competition. They launched the show on the wrong night, didn't gain steam in the ratings. The network executives, they tried to adjust the show too much, which apparently is the case. They never allow the comedians to truly write the show. A lot of the network executives like to meddle. And he said, yeah, that would have been the avenue to fame. And instead, the show was yanked off the air. He found out in the newspaper that it was canceled. And then he realized, all right, the phone's not ringing anymore. But I've only developed one skill in my adult life, and that's stand-up comedy. So he continued with this life and he describes a lot of the misery. So weird because most people would go to a comedy show, enjoy it and leave happy. And he said, when I get to see the crowd happy and I get to shake hands and sign some autographs and then I go to my hotel room and it's silent and I know nobody in these cities, it becomes depressing in a hurry. It's weird to think about going from such a high, high, making a huge room laugh to total silence. Nobody cares about me anymore. So do I recommend it? No. But it just goes to show he learned the lesson that sometimes the difference between a Jerry Seinfeld and a John Caponera, it's not that big. It's a slight difference. What time slot did NBC give you? Did they extend your show 13 more episodes? Did they give you enough freedom and liberty to write the script the way you want? 
to cast the show the way you want? And if the answer is no, 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 you probably have no chance. I bet there's a lot of athletes like that who watch pro sports, athletes who got to the minors in baseball, or they were drafted but never really panned out in the NFL, or had pretty good college basketball careers but had to play overseas, and they watch the NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NBA, and they go, God, if only a few little things were different. Anybody that gets really close to that ultimate level of success but doesn't reach it, it's got to haunt them. Maybe it's best to never even try to attain that level of fame. Because if you get close, but you're toiling away in that world of anonymity and mediocrity, that's got to be a rough way to suffer. It's kind of my takeaway from this guy's book, A Life in Comedy. Yeah, A Life in Comedy. He's on cruise ships now. And he watches a guy like Seinfeld and goes, that was my peer. But his show worked, mine didn't. Folks, we've been to the fucking moon. And you're just sitting there accepting that like, yeah, of course, we've been to the moon. We've been to the moon. All right, is it time finally? Are you ready? Am I ready? Is the world ready to discuss Wild Wild Country? I finished it about a week ago on Netflix. And I didn't write down any notes, but I remember feeling intense reactions to each episode. Six one-hour episodes. So now as I sit here trying to recreate that intensity, it's impossible. I just know that it blew me away. It does bring up a few interesting topics, though. Cults? Brainwashing? Huh? People are inherently fascinated with that type of stuff. Whenever you hear that somebody has been brainwashed, the immediate response is, oh shit, how susceptible are we? How fragile is the human mind? Could it happen to me? Could it happen to you? Probably. Indoctrination is a part of the human condition. And when we look at our immediate world and maybe we don't like it, we might seek something else. We might seek a different moral code, somebody else's beliefs. We may buy into it if it feels right. So there was this leader named Bhagwan. His name is much longer and now they call him Osho, but Bhagwan in India. This is the 60s. Now, I don't really know the appeal. I believe it was about meditation and violent sex. I'm probably wrong about that. But when they describe his, I guess I should say, group instead of cult, because immediately it doesn't seem like a cult. And even the believers today, the sannyasins who follow his teachings and read his books and still honor him after his death, I doubt they would say, yeah, I'm in a cult. Nobody in a cult admits to it, right? It's like nobody thinks they're racist. Nobody goes, yeah, I'm racist. You just are. But Bhagwan has followers. Bhagwan has believers. And this is, you know, the age of the Beatles starting to grow out their hair. The Maharashi. You know, yoga. Eastern influence. Creeping into the USA. The hippie movement. The communes. It all coincides. People breaking away from the previous standards to say, I'm going for the counterculture. I'm going for something new, something liberating, sexual freedom. And this guy, Bhagwan, with his beard, he developed a huge following. But the documentary is about how they bought land in Wasco County, Oregon, and moved the entire cult out there. We're talking about 7,000 people go out to the middle of nowhere in Oregon, and they bring power, and they set up a town with firefighters and police and media and homes. It's just a rural plot. And they create a town. And of course, the whole documentary is about the people surrounding the town go, we don't like this. Uh, we don't like it. 
this ain't all that American. So they're threatened. And if you just watch the trailer, it looks like there's all out gun violence. There's not. They're fully armed, fully strapped, but there's not. He has an assistant named Sheila. I should say spoiler alert, but I've already said too much. Sheila is the star of this documentary because Sheila is still alive and agreed to be interviewed for six hours, it seemed like. Oh my God, Sheila never stopped. She relived every moment. And she was a real firecracker, folks. She was a real spitfire. She would go on any show. Ted Koppel, Phil Donahue. She really brought a lot of fame to Bhagwan and his believers. I'm trying to get a different word for cult. I don't just want to call it a cult the whole time, but that's how it felt. So all these people threatened, and it turns out the city attorney, the attorney general, the FBI, detectives, they all tried to bring them down. And eventually they found out that Bhagwan might have known about the immigration fraud, meaning they were trying to legalize anybody to come to Oregon so they would have these marriages, you know, like an American marries somebody from India or France or Germany, and then they all get to live in Oregon together. Uh, But these were not real marriages. So that's the immigration fraud case that eventually took him down, arrested him, exiled, bounced. You got to go. So Bhagwan, after four years in Oregon, brought out back to India where he eventually died. But Sheila, you remember Sheila? I brought up Sheila. This must be so boring if you've never seen this documentary. But if you've seen it, all you think about is Sheila. You go to sleep and Sheila invades your dreams or your nightmares. Sheila apparently splintered off with her own faction of the cult, and she had some power. And apparently they planned to kill Bhagwan's doctor. So that's why Sheila fled in the middle of the night, caught, went to prison. Why am I trying to relive the plot? Basically, what this documentary felt like was a hoax, like a mockumentary, because I had never heard of it. I had never heard of Sanyasin's Osho Sheila But this was big, big, big national news in the early 80s. The amount of interviews that these producers, the Duplass brothers, conduct is out of this world. The amount of people who agreed to relive it, retell it, and emotionally reflect on these times, it made for one of the best documentaries of all time. That's not even up for debate. If you've seen it, I guarantee you agree. Wild, wild country. It's one of the greatest documentaries of all time. But the final message, you go, why? Why were all these people following him? That's where the documentary kind of falls flat. In the first part, they don't really explain how he became such a godlike figure to all these people who just came his way. Like he was a magnet. And sure, it was about sexual liberation and sure, meditation, all these things that probably appealed to young people. But it became like a multi-million dollar corporation. The guy had Rolls Royces, fancy diamond watches. It was so corrupt. It was almost like you couldn't script a more corrupt looking cult. At least that was some of the narrative of this doc. And I've tried to talk about it with my friends, but I have at least three friends who said it was too intense. Couldn't handle it. One of my friends said it was terrifying. Another said, yeah, I didn't want to go down that path. As in it would wreck your mind. And it did for about six days. It's all I could think about. I mean, food, of course, but all I could think about was Sheila Bhagwan. Bhagwan. On a flight. Going through the jail system. Sheila. What has become of her? And all the sannyasins who continue to practice in the name of Osho. This must just sound like babble. Biggity, biggity babble. See, if I heard a cult had about 50 followers, I'd go, yeah, I could understand how 50 people would follow a cult leader. 
But when you hear that 7,000 people moved out to the middle of nowhere in Oregon to live harmoniously under the vision of Bhagwan Osho, you start to wonder, why? How delicate is the human mind where we could just be so easily influenced to leave our previous lives and embark upon a new one? Could I be brainwashed? Could I? I don't think I could be hypnotized. I tried that once. Our high school had a grad night. And I got on stage and there was a hypnotist. Didn't work. And now when I watch anybody hypnotized, I wonder, wait, are they faking it? Isn't that what we all wonder when we see hypnotists? Wait, are these people on stage faking it? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I do know I should end here. All right, on the next podcast, Josh Friday, the mayor of Novato, I'm going to go kick in his door and force him to pour out his corazón. All right, that'll do it. Follow me on Twitter if you want, at jrosenberg957. I have a feeling nobody has joined my podcast book club, but if you want to, we are currently reading Kitchen Confidential, and we will meet at around never o'clock. So that sounds good to me. And you, episode 26, is in the books. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 